0: Hello, folks. How are you this week? I've uh, missed talking to you this week. For some reason, there was so much going on. I wanted to share it a little bit. And uh, by the way, I know I sound funny. Yes, I have a stuffed up head. And uh, hopefully, I will maintain my voice throughout the show, and it won't be too irritating. I had uh, what apparently is the – this is a medical diagnosis that I received from my physician – uh, the crud. Yes, uh, I didn't find it necessarily in any uh, diagnostic material online, but the crud apparently is uh, a well-known disease. It just uh, has a variety of different options as far as symptoms go. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I I have had this all week, and I've uh, been in and out, haven't been able to work full day because of uh, well, a sore throat that felt a little bit like someone was sticking a branding iron down my neck every time I swallowed. You know, not very convenient. You know, I did call a doctor's office and I, my doctor was of course out, so, uh, I talked to someone there. I might have been a doctor or a nurse or someone cleaning up. I don't, I don't know. Uh, and, uh, their response kind of was, yeah, uh, just rub some dirt on it, you know, so it's been that kind of week. Uh, it, I've, people have had worse weeks out there, so I'm not going to complain. What I was going to say is, Uh, How are you folks uh, holding up under the blitzkrieg of bizarre news this last, I don't know, (laughs) this last two years, but this last week especially? I mean, we have had some just seriously bizarre stuff coming out of, uh, well, we talked last week about these uh, professors and presidents of these elite colleges who uh, seemed uh, smirky and not all that bright, frankly. President Gay. From Harvard uh, is going to keep her job because they support her. Not only that, but the whole bunch of Harvard professors. Oh, yeah. Now, the good thing about all of this, and we mentioned it before, the good thing about all of this is that there is now how can anybody have any doubt about what's going on in our universities? And how can you have any confidence in people who graduate from those universities? That have, one, a lick of sense, and two, have gotten much in the way education versus spending a lot of time on being indoctrinated on this stuff. I, I just don't know what the end game here is. I think the end game for some of these people is what Victor Davis Hansen wrote about this week, and I know, I know I talk about him all the time, uh, and I posted it on our website at therickwagnershow.com. He talks about the nihilism. Now, nihilism is a sort of a philosophical idea, and it's interesting because it seems to run parallel in many ways with, with this postmodernism that we've talked about, Jordan Peterson talks about a lot too. Uh, you know, the, the rejection of Western civilization, everything's subjective, uh, ethics are all relative, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It runs pretty close to it. Nihilism is essentially that life is just like, eh, it doesn't matter, it's meaningless, and, uh, everything could just go to heck in a handbasket and it doesn't make any difference now that's a wildly oversimplified version of it I guess and it it came about uh, frankly it got used a lot by some uh, what 19th century uh, Russian authors a fair amount I mean let's face it if you want to see a depressing group of people the Russians have kind of got or that area pretty much has a, a lock on that the sort of uh, oh well have me some vodka, and then we'll go out and lay in the snow until it's all over. You know, I mean, it's uh it's not exactly these people weren't full of a uh, joie de vie, right? So uh, I'm not surprised that they came up with that. Although it's really good novels, sometimes long, <laughs> but very good. Just a few of them, but anyway, I I think that we've reached this point, and we've talked about this before, where the mission is not so much philosophical for the people who are pushing this, a substantial portion of them, but it is an end result of chaos. Now there's probably two groups in that, of that part of the main group. Part of it's just plain most postmodernism, where they want to reject everything, you know, that Western civilization has, and that kind of goes in with that fourth turning thing we've talked about. But in this group, they just want to see everything crash down. I think they're it's driven really by two kinds of feelings, and they can be even the same person. One is that it is envy, anger, and a very high degree of unhappiness with themselves. And they don't want the world to look great. They think somehow that everything out there is conspired against them, to ruin their life. And so they want to knock it all down. The, the end game doesn't matter. That nihilism thing works fine for them. Nothing matters. And I get some, you know, some good feeling for a short period of time by watching everything come crashing down that, I, that I'm angry about. The others, I think, believe that this sort of crashing down of society is going to lead to an ability to rebuild it in their own image whatever they think that is. It's usually simplistic and will obviously lead to tremendous losses of life, uh famine, wars, things like that that this kind of stuff always leads to when you think somehow that chaos is the answer. That's because they've been led to believe that somehow they're intelligent and they are elite and they will figure all this out. They just have to bring down this structure that's in their way. Yeah. I don't think that's true. <laughs> but at the main, at the, at the same time, I believe that what we have here is a whole generation who don't understand consequences. Obviously, they haven't been subjected to much in the way of consequences in their life. Uh, some of them may have, but they've just given up on caring about them. And they are very far removed from understanding any of the institutions, the ideas that their nation is founded upon, or Western culture for that matter. They don't get why why they're there. They don't get why we have them in place historically. They don't understand what they've done in the past. And they don't understand that for the most part, we all realize that some of these things need tweaking as we go along. That's not enough for them. Part of it is, of course, because you know. I mean, if we, if the people rebelling against want a very small movement, you have to want the whole thing to come tumbling down. But as you watch this, uh, listen for that answer to the question that I think is always interesting, and you don't get many people asking it, so you have to kind of, kind of fish it out of what people are talking. What, what do you want? What is, and it not in a specific thing like we want this one thing. No. Where does all of this go? Where does this whole package of, of ideas that, uh, you're coming up with? Many of these, most of these people, where does it all go? Like I've said before, what's the end game? If you got everything you wanted, what would it look like? Now, some of them are going to say, oh, we'd live in harmony and we would all, you know, it would be communism essentially, but we'd all get along. And of course, you know, what can you do with somebody thinks that? They obviously need some help or a history book, but nevertheless, I mean, a good history book, what you get is no idea. It's very similar to asking progressives, how much is enough tax right? on, say, upper middle class family? How much? 30%? 40%? 60%? What's the number? What's the top? They never want to say because the top is not what they think about. They just think about more, right? The top would would require some sort of sophisticated analysis about, well, this is what I want to do. This is what it would take. Even if you don't understand it very well, it would require some sort of formulaic idea. No, they haven't done that. They just want more. So the answer to when is there enough tax is more, and you're never going to get a straight answer. But it tells you who you're dealing with—someone who has a momentary idea that's usually motivated by envy, anger, self-loathing. You know, you name it; those things usually go together. And this is what they want. No answer. Really. We'll be back. Okay. Thanks for sticking with us, folks. I appreciate it. I'm, I know I don't sound very well and I'm probably, uh, breathing into the mic too much, but, uh, that's what happens when you become a mouth breather. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I am enjoying myself, uh, as best as possible. Actually, well, I should enjoy myself and talk to you folks, but I have something I wanted to make sure I got over today. Now, my notes are a little hard to read here, but many of you may not know this, but, uh, December 16th. Anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. Yeah, that's right. And that don't mean I'm sitting around clicking China cups together, but uh, the Boston Tea Party. So I thought we should spend a little time talking about that. And I found some really good information at the uh, Bill of Rights It has some good stuff and it's really laid out like uh, lesson plans. For those of you out there that are homeschooling, you might want to look at it. It's uh, the Bill of Rights and uh, then you know they have like an essay an explanation of it. This one's probably for high school, you know, kind of things. And then they have a sample questions and all kinds of things after it. So, you know, if you're homeschooling or you just want to, you know, give your kids like a, a really kind of a deep dive in something they ought to know, I think this is a pretty good, uh, pretty good site. Anyway, so this, by the way, the Boston Tea Party, right? Uh, they passed the, the Tea Act. In 1773, that is parliament in Britain. Part of the reason they did it is because the East India Trading Company, which had a monopoly on things coming out of India, and had made an enormous amount of money in the past. By the way, if you ever want to see something that's kind of crazy, look at the history of the East India Company. I mean, they had their own military. They just, you know, was it was a crazy, crazy thing there. Anyway, but things were getting a little thinner for them right now. And so they decided to tax tea to kind of uh, prop up this company. The East India Company had a very strange relationship with the government. It felt like a private company, but it also felt like that the government was involved with it, and they were. It uh, was a kind of a shady little deal for a long time. But everyone made a lot of money, helped them control what was going on in India, and so everybody just said, okay, fine. But it wasn't the only reason that they wanted to uh, put a tax on tea. And I'm reading here, Charles Townsend, who was chancellor of the Exchequer, which is, you know, their taxing authority in Britain even to this day, had told Parliament that the the goal of the act was as much to retain the power to tax the colonies on British goods as it was to collect revenue from the existing tax on tea. So in other words, they wanted to assert their authority. Because, you know, during this time, the colonists were getting kind of rambunctious You know, Samuel Adams, people like that were, you know, they they were unhappy with the way that things were going with their relationship with Britain. So, you know, the colonists, of course, resisted this act because they felt like it it violated their principle of self-government, which they thought had been given to them by the British crown. And uh, they could afford the tax, but it, it wasn't about that. It was about the fact that they just decided to do it and felt like they could impose it on them. They felt in the colonies like that was going against the grain of the relationship they had with Great Britain. Remember, at this point, people still, in general, thought you could work something out with Great Britain. George Washington said, when it came to this uh, tea tax, he said, what are we contending against? Is it against paying the duty of three pence per pound? On tea because it is burdensome. No, it is the right only. You know that is a little bit more. That as Englishmen, we could not be deprived of this essential and valuable part of our constitution. Gee, there's a there's some language that could probably used almost every day now. So what's happening is as tea began to come into the ports along uh, the uh, colonies in New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, all those ports. There was a lot of anger from colonists and tried to keep it from being unloaded. They said they threatened tax collectors and resigning. They protested. They said that once again they were getting taxation without representation. Now, in Boston, of course, Samuel Adams, he took some time off from brewing beer, you know, uh, oversaw the adoption of resolutions calling on the T agents to resign. Of course, they refused. And a ship called the Dartmouth dropped anchor in Boston Harbor on uh, November 28th. Had 114 crates of British tea. They had a lot of money invested in that, who, the people who owned that. And they wanted it unloaded. But the, but the people in the colony there and the Patriot leaders uh, wanted to use it as a moment in time to galvanize the people against the British and what they were doing at the time. They also felt like that if they landed the tea and somehow that you know, they were shown to be cheaper than people thought, that it might ruin the boycott. We're talking a lot of people here. According to the history that we have is, during this time, a crowd of five or 6,000 people gathered at the uh, port to try and stop the unloading of the tea. Now, this is 1773, so getting a crowd of five or 6,000 people, pretty good-sized crowd at that time, very big time. And, you know, next week, two more ships came in with tea. They pulled up alongside the Dartmouth and, uh, Abigail Adams, you know, wrote, she was such a smart woman. The flame is kindled. Great will be the devastation if not timely quenched or allied by some more lenient measures. Uh, On the 14th of December, thousands again demanded that, uh, the tea be returned to England, but they refused to do so. So. On December 16th, one day before the deadline for, for the landing of the T, this is, this is what the people in the port, uh, had been told that this was a deadline from the shipping owners. We have to land the T by the 16th. More than 7,000 people gathered at the Old South Meeting House. That was at this point Boston's largest building. And Samuel Adams announced that nothing more could be done to save their country, right? At that time, dozens of colonists Dressed like Indians, and this is something you should as a symbol of American freedom. Because they thought the Indians were symbolized American freedom, and of course trying to disguise their identity, which I doubt was very effective. I mean, if you can see your face, I mean, it's all like now where you can, people wear a hoodie, and then a mask, and then maybe a pair of sunglasses, and nobody seems to think that's a problem. But at this point, I would guess somebody had a pretty good idea. The mob uh, said, oh, the Mohawks are come. And uh, John Hancock, who was there, he said, uh, to do their patriotic duty, let every man do what is right in his own eyes. Okay. Uh, what they did, of course, is that uh, they boarded the three ships, the band of Mohawk impersonators did, and dumped into the harbor 90,000 pounds of tea worth about $10,000 in 10,000 pounds, I'm sorry, which would be millions of dollars worth today. Um, Now, at that time, there was not a, a super consensus on this. There were some in the colonies that felt like this was a destructive act and a crime. And it was. I mean, it was certainly a crime and it was destructive. The question was, is it justified or was it justified in some way? We look back on it now as something that was a precursor to what we knew was coming, a battle for freedom and so forth. Uh, Some of the colonists did not. They felt it was risky, that it was criminal, and that it would have bad repercussions. Remember, not a lot of uh, colonists at this time wanted to necessarily separate from England. They just wanted to be treated better. And they weren't sure this was going to help. It was only later on when... It didn't appear that we were going to get anywhere with getting treated better or get better representation in England for the colonies. That a sort of event horizon in terms of the number of people who wanted to just break free from England uh, reached, you know, that point. And even then, there were plenty of people in the colonies that didn't want that. So there was still some debate. It's interesting to read. Uh, what people were thinking then about the Boston Tea Party, uh, I would say the majority of what you see is in favor of it, because it, it it just seemed too much to most people. Why are you tack? What what more are you doing here? Why are you doing it? And then of course they're they're not totally without the news. It takes a lot longer to get there, but especially when it's clear that this is just sort of a way to, to make sure the government. Uh, can be seen to have the power to tax them and sort of lord it over them or control them, which seems like a pretty thin reason to take people's money. Now, of course, we realize that they, that's just one of the reasons they take our money. And so that bothered a lot of people, uh, beyond just the, the expense. As Washington said, the expense was not that great, but the onerous behavior of the british government was what was really being protested there so one wonders how that lines up today with people who are, believe that that's also a symbol of their own protest and when they destroy things and there are significant differences there yes it was an illegal act but it was done for a, a very is a very different time and very different way of looking at things um this was headed toward something else, and it uh, was sort of an act of patriotism, not an act of destruction. That seems to be the key amount there. There was a purpose to it that everybody knew and most people at that time supported stopping this tax. We'll be back. Hi, folks, thanks for sticking around with uh, this uh, stuffy headed uh, commentator here. I appreciate it today. I hope you enjoyed a little bit of that information on the Boston Tea Party. I, I found some things in there that I didn't uh, know about exactly, or how, how it was brought up. And, I like, I did not know about the fact that these uh, Indian impersonators came running into Boston Hall there and, uh, you know, then took off to uh, go do whatnot to the uh, ships. And, yeah, that was kind of interesting and uh, probably pretty, pretty theatrical anyway. I, I want to get into some of these other things for this week. And, of course, we have the impeachment inquiry starting. We have Hunter Biden showboating in front of Congress. Uh, well, outside of the Capitol, how oh, he's not going to show up. This is going to be pretty interesting, by the way, because you remember that Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro both refused to testify, were found to be in contempt of Congress, and the Justice Department came and got them, remember? Yeah, they had, uh, you know, they, they took him for a crime. I'm pretty sure we're going to get a referral to the Justice Department for Hunter, assuming they can find him. And then, uh, I guess we'll see what happens. That's going to be a really interesting part of this. Is he going to be treated the same way by the Justice Department that they treated multiple individuals from the Trump administration? It's very. It'll be very interesting to see. Now he had to know this, or whoever was working with him had to know this. What I wonder. It, oh, and this just seems kind of crazy. But there's so many crazy things happening now. Why not speculate on this one? Remember when they were trying to serve Hunter with the papers regarding his uh Woodlock child, and it turned out that he'd been spending time at the White House, so they couldn't find him to serve him. Do you think maybe? He might go hole up the White House again while this is going on, thinking he might blow over or something? I don't think so. I I think it's possible. But it, it would be another crime to aid and abet him in contempt of Congress. If someone encouraged him or did something to further his contempt of Congress. So it seems to me like letting him go lurk in the White House when they know there's a warrant out for him, assuming that ever happens, and I, I'd be a little surprised if it does, is going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. And then of course, everyone is saying, well, you know he's gonna get pardoned by his dad for everything. anyway. Well, have better start pretty quickly if they uh, get the contempt of Congress thing going. Personally, I think he's going to grandstand this around and then eventually testify and say nothing. They'll bring out everything that we already heard and ask him about it, and he's going to either prevaricate or say he doesn't remember or just say, well, I did that, but none of it went to my dad because that's the new narrative is that, and you've seen this, uh, various people have talked about it, how the narrative changes from, I never talked to my son about his business dealings to never, I was never involved in my business dealings. And now we're at these, he never, uh, was financially involved or got anything, any, in terms of money from my financial dealings. So th- it's allowing him to get closer and closest, to, closer to Joe. If you listen to the kind of rhetoric. So I, I think you'll get really not much out of the guy. And I mean, he might even pull a fifth on some of that stuff in there. Uh, I kind of doubt it. He wants to testify in public because he's been told that it'll be an opportunity for him to rail against uh, the political prosecution. He also wants to, you know, not give any information and leave the idea that, well, they don't have anything. I actually watched and I know this is, this is painful. I looked at a couple of the, what do they call them now? Are they, are they comedy shows? You know, uh, Seth Myers, uh, and, you know, Stephen Colbert. I, I, I guess they're technically comedies. Anyway, you know, Colbert has been going on about this. Oh, you know, making jokes, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there. I mean, everybody has got the same script. Well, there's plenty there. It is mostly circumstantial at this point, and some of it isn't even that. It's a little more leaning towards pretty darn close to direct evidence. They just think that if they say it long enough and loud enough and get enough people to say it, then enough people will believe it that it won't matter. I mean, I think they they got some of that from Hillary. And they brought Hillary on board because, as we all know, Hillary is so likable and uh, warm and makes people feel really good about themselves whenever, you know, whenever they, they see her. They say, oh, gosh, Hillary. I feel so good. You know, she just, she cares about everybody so much. Oh, what they're looking for her is, okay, how did you evade all of this stuff? How did you keep yourself out of a worse problem? Well, probably the same way they're going to. They're going to get the FBI, who is going to do nothing, the Justice Department, who will prevaricate and do nothing. If necessary, Someone will come out and say that, you know, this uh, this evidence and all of this is uh, very discouraging, but, you know, they've been unable to find any connection between uh, President Biden and his son's business. And it'll, uh, it'll probably be some Justice Department official. The higher they're up, the more likely it is to happen, by the way. Then they'll hope everything can go away. And and you see what's happening. All, there's a lot of news in there about the impeachment inquiry, but it just doesn't, it isn't going anywhere. I mean, it's, it's kind of depressing. I mean, they had about 10% and you had to imagine that 10% was much worse than it was on President Trump and they impeached him twice. Second time wasn't even really an actual impeachment. They just went through and, you know, had a vote. They didn't do the. Really, didn't do any of the procedural things that needed to be done. And the same people that did that, like Reskin, are out there with absolutely no connection to the idea of irony, talking about that there's nothing there, there's a lot more there than what you are going after, but that seems to mean nothing. I've said this before. If hypocrisy were a fatal disease, Washington D.C certainly around the Capitol, would be a ghost town. It's unbelievable. There's a shamelessness to this that we didn't used to see. There's this thing where they believe, and apparently they're correct to some extent, that the public no longer cares and is not engaged enough to look past what they say to see if it's even true. And they also play on the idea that they can so vilify a person, President Trump, people that support him, and then throw them into some sort of, uh, Nomaga, you know, this and that. I, I, I don't think that's a, that's sticking as well as they think. But they don't have anything else. Remember, these are the people who think Bidenomics is a good idea. So there you have it. But they, they just think that they vilified A movement Donald Trump is an incredible person in terms of his ability to withstand this stuff and do some of the things he has done but he's at the front of a movement you know this is not in front of the Republican Party they've just gotten behind him because they can't figure out any other way to go it wouldn't be their choice if they could but the people have found him to be encapsulating and speaking in a way that resonates with them and has created a movement. He said things that have clarified certain things about our economy, about our foreign policy, about what's going on with our, our own federal bureaucracy that no one else has said. And because of that, he has become the point of this movement. He's sort of found the people out there who wanted something to do, so a populist movement, and they didn't know quite what to do, and and he tapped into that. So uh, they don't, still don't really understand that on the left. They they have just not figured that out yet. Uh, exactly what he what he is and what he means. Uh, they've not had anybody like that for a very long time. Now some people would would you know point to uh, Barack Obama, you know. Uh, that's not really the same at all. Barack Obama really was not as uh, interesting as they made him out to be. He was a tool. Uh, he was the opposite of Donald Trump in the sense that Donald Trump existed outside of politics and got in them and then became the focal point for this movement, populist movement, protect America, make it great again, and whatever you want to call it, and then move forward and has been taking the blows, just, I don't know how many of us could stand that. Whereas Barack Obama was a creation, and many of you know his early days, he was shaped to be a politician, shaped to do what he did. Now, he was really directed early on towards the mayor of Chicago, you know, much more powerful position. And that didn't happen because he was able to leverage himself into national politics, uh, end up in the Senate for a very short period of time. And then they saw a very useful marketing possibility and someone who had ideas that they agreed with, but didn't vocalize them very much. And, and, We know where that ended. And so it's hard to imagine the last person they had that that really seemed to uh, encapsulate a movement. People will go back, oh, you know, JFK. No, no. I mean, JFK was, I think, had a lot of interesting ideas and was probably a conservative compared to what we're doing now, certainly on taxes, national defense, all sorts of things. But remember, at the time, uh, he was not really particularly popular. At the time of his assassination, he was a popular president because people liked him somewhat. And certainly he had a photogenic, you know, he and his wife and the whole thing was was pretty, you know, uh, something that people could identify with or would like to identify with. But he was not super popular at the time. And, and now we look back in a different way to that presidency. His accomplishments were not all that you know Notable. Really, LBJ pushed through most of the things that, uh, JFK wanted to have done, plus his own. You know, once he got a couple of things done that JFK had, you know, been messing around with, then he went on his Great Society program. We've talked about that, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again. It's really one of the, the basis for about 75% of what our problems are now. So you really have to go back to FDR, I think to have somebody that has a comparable following uh, to Trump. And I hate to do that because I, I, I don't... FDR was a good wartime president. We were lucky to have him because he recognized what was going on and how it needed to be dealt with in Europe and things like that. And But he was not worth a darn on the economy. And he elongated the Depression. I mean, those of you that have read uh, Amity Schleil's book, uh, The Forgotten Man... Can see that all over the place. Uh, probably years longer than it should have been because of his policies. And then, of course, he created a, a much bigger federal bureaucracy than it ever existed before. But nevertheless, he was able to get a following and a movement that he understood, same way Donald Trump does. Like I said they're not congruent. It's just that's the you got to go back to that point in time to see, you know, uh, a leader that was able to do that now speaking of that point in time I also saw and I just I just can't possibly recommend anybody look at it I I did it because I needed to talk to you about it I don't it it was a the Lincoln project remember the Lincoln projects all of these failed Republican uh, campaign people and fundraisers that got enormously mad at Donald Trump and they're really an odious group of people Um, they just, you know, they, they're angry at Trump and everything is directed at Trump. And it's uh, it's pretty interesting to see people spin like that. I mean, they are they were purportedly Republicans for the most part at some time. That's why there's the Lincoln Project. Yes, right. And they had a video out about, oh, the America First movement. And what they did is they took all of this uh, video from the 30s. With, uh, guess what, what are their videos of? Oh, that's right. Nazis. That's correct. I mean, surprise. And many of you may know, because most of you are better historians than most, that we had a anti-war movement that was connected with the fascists. That there were people in the United States that did not want to go to war in Europe. We had the American Bund, uh, and we had an American Nazi party. And so they have some video of that. And there was a oh, America first. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's the first time anybody's ever heard that was when Donald Trump said it. Uh, everything can be perverted, for God's sakes. And so they're trying to run that. And essentially what was really furiating to me was the sort of message there was that Trump and his followers are just like this. Now, there were a lot of people that didn't know any better than in those rallies. And don't forget that during the 30s, especially actually the late 20s especially, Mussolini in particular was thought of as being a pretty good guy. Really knew what he was doing over there. He was shaping things up in Italy. And a lot of the people who enjoyed the idea of an administrative state where the government dictated so much of the economy and controlled so many things like that was what was needed, especially during the Depression. And so they saw Mussolini and eventually Hitler, who adopted fascism. remember, fascism, and we've said this many times before, is an Italian word. That's actually a Latin word derived from. Hitler adopted it. So there was, there was not this thing that we have now, because now we have the advantage of looking back over things. So there, there wasn't as strong a aversion to it. We didn't know what was coming. For the most part, didn't know what was happening. And, of course, a lot of that can be traced back to some of the media at the time. And most of you have heard Mark Levin talk about New York Times and how they had their main reporter on things going on in Berlin was, uh, you know, he thought fascism was okay. So we were really, you know, didn't have a good idea what was going on over there. And so they play this as the Lincoln Project, and it's so insulting and it's also tired. I mean, I'm just tired of the, you know, really the Nazis again, huh? Really, you know, the dictator. You know, he's, uh, you know, just good lord, not this stuff again. And but it's so insulting to the populace and to Trump supporters, which of course is what they want. They viciously dislike Trump and his supporters. And they will do everything possible to tar and feather their reputations. And if the Lincoln Project can reach people and individuals who don't know any better or who already think like they do, that's what they're going to do. And there are many other groups out there like that that spend all of their time demonizing you for the most part. And what they say is, well, look, look what's happening with Fox News this other place when they're playing all this stuff on about how bad San Francisco is and about all this crime yeah right because there is all this crime and San Francisco is bad that that you know sort of walking hair gel of Gavin Newsom was on uh Seth Myers I saw the clip another genius jeez talking about how you know Republicans were unfairly you know targeting San Francisco and things like that by showing all these scenes and stuff well are they true or not? I mean, that was what I was thinking when I looked at the clip. I mean, okay, so they're showing them. That's not nice, huh? What do you mean it's not? It, is it true? Of course it's true. You know, how do you get to the? You shouldn't be showing that. But, and he he cherry picks the things. Uh, he completely leaves out. That there's an enormous fiscal deficit in California now. Talks about all the job growth out there. In certain areas, much of it, no. And compared to the job growth versus the influx of immigration in there, you're going to be carrying a lot of people who weren't productively working in that state. So all of that he doesn't even talk about. He talks about two or three things and then blames Republicans for casting a light on what the heck's happening. Let's face it, these Democrat cities have done a terrible job of running them and have gone from just doing a terrible job to feeling like you're purposely doing things to them. Brandon Johnson in Chicago, the mayor who took Lori Lightfoot's job, who as I've said before, I didn't think it was likely that you could find someone worse than Lori Lightfoot, and they seem to have found someone. It just did away, and he's done so many different things. And the, the place is just, I've looked at the crime stats. I mean, you don't want to go there in most of the city. It means parts of the city are going to be fine, but there's a lot of it that you don't want to accidentally get off on the wrong exit. And he is now trying to do away with the uh, specialty magnet type schools in Chicago for gifted because it contributes to what what inequity right because it sh- it shows that there are some people who are much higher achievers than others, and we don't want that so he's trying to do away with those those schools remember uh this this is what de blasio was trying to do in New York and you know, I think that to some extent Adams has been messing around with it, but certainly de Blasio was. They want to get rid of these programs that show that a uh, strict curriculum and finding the people who are most interested in learning turns out a better product. They do not want that. Partly because it bothers the teachers' unions because obviously they're not teaching somebody in these other schools. It also shows that you could probably change that system and do better. I don't want that either. And so they use this equity argument. There is a interesting cartoon I saw about equity versus equality. And it had a fence on it. And it's under the equity the illustration. These kids of differing heights... We're all standing on different sized boxes. So at the end, they were the same height looking over the fence. Right? So the idea was that at the end of the day, they were going to have the same amount no matter where they started. This is kind of equity in a nutshell, isn't it? Well, you folks have a great weekend. We'll be back. Hopefully, I'll have a better voice. And uh, go to our website, take a look at this stuff, and uh, check out our podcast. See you soon.